and welcome to today's episode of the Group Therapy Podcast. Today we have um, director, uh, producer, writer, actor. Um, if you've seen a, uh, a low-budget horror movie in the last 50 years, you've probably seen or seen a movie that this gentleman has put together. Um, we're talking to Donald Farmer. Um, he's got movies going back to 72. And uh, like I said, if, you, if you've seen a horror movie, you've seen this gentleman one way, shape, or form. So, uh, Donald, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, like you said, I started making films about 50 years ago. My, uh, between 1973 and 76, I made a series of uh, Super 8 millimeter short silent movies that were color but silent. And they were short films that I would just show at parties or to friends or whatever. And I had them in my closet for years and never did anything with them. And then a few years ago, uh, Ron Bonk with SRS Cinema said he was interested in putting together a package of my early Super 8 movies. So I sent them to him and he had them professionally transferred. And so all, all of my um, Super 8 movies that I made in this period uh, in the 70s are available now in two volumes uh, called the Donald Farmer Collection Volume 1 and Volume 2. And they're on Blu-ray. And so, uh, you know, the longest one is 40 minutes and some of the others are 15 minutes. There's a 30 minute one. So there are varying running times, but none of them were features. And then after I did the last one of those in 76, I had a 10 year period where I didn't do any filmmaking. I was more into writing. I was working for uh, two daily newspapers and also I was a reporter for Fangoria, and I was a American editor for a French horror fantasy magazine called Le Cron Fantastique, and uh, so, and then I did my own uh, horror zine called The Spider Times, so I was uh, more into writing back uh, for these off years when I wasn't making movies, uh, but <clears throat> by working for Fangoria and some of these other magazines, I got to be on the set of a lot of uh, exciting movies like uh, I was on Day of the Dead, and George Romero even let me play a zombie in it while I was there doing an article, and I was on Stephen King's Cat's Eye, and John Carpenter's Starman, and uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2, so, uh, you know, after being on all these exciting movie sets, it sort of got me motivated to get back into filmmaking, because I'd been watching all these great directors like Sam Raimi and John Carpenter, George Romero, you know, up front and up close watch them at work and so that really motivated me to want to get back into filmmaking of course the big difference was they had multi-million dollar budgets and i didn't have anywhere near the budgets they had so i had to get back into filmmaking but at a minuscule budget level of just whatever money i could throw together and so my first feature that was my professionally distributed feature was demon queen that i made in uh, miami and fort lauderdale in 86 and uh we got international distribution for it. It was released in America, Korea, France, and Belgium. And uh, then my second movie was part of that distribution package. So it also had the same distribution pattern, only it had one extra country. My second movie uh, had one extra country. It was also distributed individually in Canada. So my second movie, Cannibal Hookers, was distributed in America, Canada, Korea, France, and Belgium. And and then from there, I just kept making more of these uh, features that were uh, shot on video. Uh, I did four in a row that were shot on video. I did, uh, after I did Demon Queen and Cannibal Hookers, then I did Scream Dream and Savage Vengeance. Uh, 
And then my fifth movie, Vampire Cop, I made the leap to shooting on film, and uh, I shot that on 16 millimeter. And then through the 90s, nearly all, pretty much with one exception, everything I did in the 90s was shot on film. The one exception was uh, my uh, lesbian vampire movie, Red Lips, which is probably the best known of every movie I did in the 90s. It's probably the one that's the best known. It's the cheapest of all my 90s movies, but it's the one most people know because it did have uh, a good subject matter and it had a great cast with uh, Kate Chasen from Gorotica. It had Michelle Bauer from Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and it had Kitten Nevadad, who was in a lot of Russ Meyer movies, and George Stover, who was in several John Waters movies. So we had a really great cast. And and uh, that movie uh, just came out on a Blu-ray for the first time from um, Saturn's Core and Vinegar Syndromes. So that movie just keeps on going and going and going. We're not as well, you know, not talked about as much. And then... Um, Around 2000, I started getting back into. Um, I did a got back into a horror because most of these, with the exception of Red Lips, all my 90s movies were non-horror because I was working as a director for hire for people that would give me bigger budgets to shoot on film. So I was getting six-figure budgets, but they wouldn't let me do horror. They said I had to do action or murder mystery things like that. So um, around 2000, I got back into horror with this movie I made in France called Erotic Vampire in Paris. And um, then I did that one and another one called Deadly Memories, which were shot under the title Body Shop. I did those two back-to-back. Those both star Tina Krause. And uh, Deadly Memories also had Robert Zadar from Maniac Cop and William Smith from uh, Conan the Barbarian and Any Which Way You Can with Clint Eastwood. And so... uh, then uh, in the ninety, then, then after I did those two, then my next horror movies were Dorm of the Dead and uh, Chainsaw Cheerleaders, which were shot on um, uh, digital. And then more recently, I've done a whole string of movies just back to back. Did uh, Shark Exorcist, Cannibal Cop, Hooker with a Hacksaw, Cannibal Hookers, Bigfoot Exorcist, Shark Exorcist Two, and then my new movie is um, Debbie Does Demons, which comes out on Blue right in may and i've also started producing movies that i don't necessarily direct uh, where i produce them and other people direct them so i just produced a remake of my movie uh, savage vengeance and i've got a remake of uh, scream dream that we're shooting later this year that i'm co-producing and i've also uh, produced a movie called none dead which is an anthology movie which is coming out later this year from srs cinema so um, I'm really enjoying producing movies for other directors too, and giving other directors an opportunity. That's that's really cool. You see, um, I was noticing you. I, I, I don't mean this. Don't take this any bad way. You you seem to really have ridden that um, '80s wave of direct video, and because a lot of that stuff. Because I remember going to the video store back in the '80s and in the early '90s and seeing some of these films on the shelves back then. So, you know, I know that, that uh, a lot of directors really were able to catch on to that direct-to-DVD or, or direct-to-video market. And, uh, you know... Yeah, that, that was a great time when... Because you know, in, uh, in the mid-'80s, most video stores were mom-and-pop independently owned video stores. They weren't part of a chain because Blockbuster didn't come along till later. So uh, the best time, I thought, as a filmmaker was when America had 
pretty much a mom and pop video store or one or more in every little town, no matter how small Ooh, you could drive. <laughs> you could drive all across the country in the mid eighties and seemed like every little town had a mom and pop video store. Yep. And you know, even teeny, even, even amazingly small towns, every store, every town had at least one. It's like today when you drive across the country today, every little town has a vape shop. So yep. it's sort of not, <laughs> but it, when you think of how many vape shops there are now in the 80s, that's how many video stores there were. Well, the, the, I had to explain this to, because uh, I, have, I have a comic book store, and we have these kids that come in, and, and these kids, you know, early 20s, so they've almost never lived in a world that, you know, post, you know, pre-streaming. And I was like, you don't understand it. One time, our little tiny town had at least five video stores. Now it has four vape shops. Uh, <laughs> we got like, I want to say like 28,000 people. And not only did we have five video stores, you had every grocery store had a video department in it. So, yeah, I mean, Kroger used to have a video department and all the Kroger's. Yeah. And my, my local Kroger carried some of my movies. I mean, I saw, I saw Cannibal Hookers and Savage Vengeance at Kroger. And uh, they also carried my Civil War movie with Michelle Bauer, Blood and Honor. So I saw all three of those movies of mine at Kroger. And by the way, I was digging through my VHS tapes back in my storage, and uh, I found my, my Savage Vengeance VHS tape from back in the day. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but now, now, how did you how did you get into uh, um, film? To, I mean, you know, you were you were making movies as a kid. Did you go to school, or was it just something that you just enjoyed from a kid and you just kept doing it? Yeah, I never went to school for it, but I, uh, you know, I when I grew up, we always had a movie camera in my house because. Uh, my mother uh, made home movies of every memorable thing we did. So, you know, if, as long as I can remember, I was being filmed with this home movie camera. So there came a point where I got old enough, I decided to pick up the home movie camera and try it myself. So I made a little three-minute quickie in 1967 uh, to see if I could make a movie uh, with this home video with home movie camera shooting in standard eight millimeter. And so I made something, but I, um, it turned out disastrously because I didn't have the lens cap completely uh, positioned correctly. So like half of the image I shot was a black because I didn't have the lens completely uh, adjusted correctly. So the, my first uh, attempt to make a movie in 67 was uh, pretty much a three-minute disaster. And so I didn't try to make another movie till 73 when I then had a, my own camera, which was a Super 8 camera, which was much better quality than the one that my mother had been using. Uh, and then with that camera, I started making all these shorts, which you can now uh, get on Blu-ray from these two collections. In fact, if you go to YouTube, you can watch the trailers of both of my volumes of all my Super 8 movies. Just just go to YouTube and type in Donald Farmer Collection and the trailers for volume one and volume two will pop right up and you can uh, sort of see highlights of them without having to actually order them. But of course I do want you to order them. <laughs> oh yeah. Now, now is there, is there any uh, movies that you have done that are out of print that you, you, you wish upon, you know, a star that you could get back into print? 
Oh, yeah, there's quite a few. There's, uh, well, I, I've done several documentaries in addition to my movies. And, uh, yeah, I'd say a couple of my documentaries are impossible to find now. I mean, my best-known documentary is Invasion of the Scream Queens, which was a documentary about horror movie actresses. And I did that in 91, and we interviewed uh, Hammer's Martine Beswick from Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, and we had Monique uh, Gabrielle from uh, Death Stalker 2 and uh, from Not of This Earth. And we had Michelle Bauer from Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. We had uh, Mich Melissa Moore, who was in my early movie. She was in both Vampire Cop and Scream Dream. We had Brink Stevens. Everybody knows her from uh, Nightmare Sisters. And uh, so we had a lot of these, uh, you know, popular Scream Queens. We had Liz Caton from Halloween 7. I mean, no, Friday the 13th 7. And uh, and she's also in Assault of the Killer Bimbos. So we had quite a lot of these actresses all in our documentary. And that one you can still get. It came out on uh, DVD from World Eye Releasing, which is a, a really uh, powerful company. They do really good distribution. So their stuff is usually easy to find on eBay. But uh, I did some other documentaries, which are totally lost now, which I don't There's one I did, called, which was a documentary about O.J. Simpson, and I don't even have a copy of that, so I didn't even keep a copy of it because, you know, I wasn't really, I didn't care for it. I just did it as a job. And it came out on video. It never came out on DVD. It came out while video was still the, prim the primary format. And so I used to have a copy of it, but I sold it because now if, whenever it pops up on eBay, it's going for over $100. And I don't even have enough interest in it to buy a copy for myself. <laughs> and I'm sure not going to pay $100 for it. So that's one that... Uh, that I don't even have, and that if you want it, it just occasionally pops up on eBay at a rid ridiculous prices. So if anyone wants to see my O.J. Simpson documentary, it's going to cost you three figures at least. And then I did another documentary uh, on the on the invasion of Iraq, which was a, a very serious documentary called Who's War, which is a documentary about the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, after 9-11. And we had... Three celebrities in that one. Uh, we had Jello Biafra, the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. We had uh, Mike Farrell, the TV star from the TV show MASH. Those starred on MASH with Alan Alda. And, and we had uh, Keith Gordon, who's a big horror star, star of Stephen King's Christine, the movie directed by John Carpenter. And he's also the hero in the Brian De Palma movie Dressed to Kill. But he's probably best known uh, playing Rod. Feel son in the movie Back to School. So we had these three guys start, and the whole movie was basically just uh, interviews with these three guys about uh, their opinions about the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So that was a very serious documentary, and I made it for this uh, paid streaming site where people would have to pay to stream it, and for several years it was on this site, and if you wanted to see it, you had to go to this paid streaming site, which... Uh, I don't even know if they're still around. It was called Indie Flicks. But uh, they eventually, after a few years, they finally took it off and because uh, they kept wanting to update their uh, repertory of films with newer films. And so I still do have a copy of that one, so maybe I'll put it out. But it's sort of dated because I don't know if anyone really wants to watch a documentary about the invasion of Iraq. By now, all this with so much that's happened since then, uh, so the only people that might be interested in it might be Jello by Afra Completus that just like to have everything he ever did. Yeah, definitely. The uh, 
that that's one of the problems with doing documentaries. There's documentaries that I absolutely love, but they get some of them just get dated so quickly because it's it was poignant and very topical at the moment it dropped. Then a couple years down the road, everybody's like, eh, okay. Eh. So. <laughs> I, just, I just participated as a talking head in other people's documentaries, too. I'm in, I'm in a couple of other documentaries. I just, I just participated in a documentary about the history of the movie King Kong. And I know the producer just sent me some clips from it, told me it's available online now. And then I also did another documentary uh, for Ballyhoo Productions, which I think was more of a documentary about indie filmmaking. So I've done that also. I've been in I've been in several documentaries that other people made, and I'm getting ready to do one in a few weeks. I just have been informed that uh, while I'm releasing the company that now distributes my 89 1989 movie Scream Dream, they're going to be putting it out in a deluxe edition, and they want to interview with me for a documentary there'll be like a special feature on the blu-ray and so they're sending a camera crew down to meet with me sometime in the next couple of weeks to shoot this footage for a special feature so i guess uh, that's interesting that that movie is coming out again uh, so quickly because it just came out on uh, a jumbo vhs last year and so now i guess there was enough response to that that now a lot of people have been saying well i I got the VHS, but what I really want is a Blu-ray, so I guess they're going to make those people happy and give them not only a Blu-ray, but a Blu-ray loaded with special features. Heck yeah. And then in like a year, we get the, uh, you'll get the two-pack. You'll get the, the original and the remake two-pack. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, because the, the, the remake is happening this year, and uh, they've, uh, they've already raised uh, enough on Indiegogo. I think they've already raised like 18000 for the budget, so they've got a good little working budget to do the remake with. Yeah. It's uh, just going to star in the remake, and she's like the star of my last four movies. So with her, she'll be playing the role that Melissa Moore played in the original one. So yeah. it'll be great with her because she's always great. Yeah, she does. She definitely has the look, too. Yeah. The, yeah. So she'll be playing the sexy leads, uh, the rock singer that ends up getting possessed by her uh, by the other singer that's uh, that's the demon girl so anyway I'm looking forward to that when that when that one comes out uh, it's been directed by Adam Freeman and I'm co-producing it but Adam is the writer and director of this all-new version cool. and yeah. I believe they're gonna shoot mainly in Kentucky yeah I believe so I believe that's what it was said yeah they can't shoot it where I shot the original because the nightclub where we shot the original um, Scream Dream uh, actually blew up with, due to a gas explosion. So club just blew up and is, was carted away. So, uh, and then the studio where we shot the uh, original, we shot half of it in this nightclub and half in a studio, photo studio. And that studio was bulldozed several years ago. So they really can't show any of my locations from the original. They're all gone. That's a shame. But, uh, but nightclubs, they, they just don't last like they used to, man. There used to be nightclubs around here that had been around since the 70s and the 80s. And well, this particular nightclub was owned by a friend of mine, and what happened was he was approached by some property developers that wanted to buy his nightclub, bulldoze it, 
and then build a mall on the land because they said the land his nightclub was on was the site they wanted to use to build this mall. He refused to sell his nightclub to these developers. And after very shortly after he refused to do business with them, uh, in the middle of the night, one night, his nightclub mysteriously blew up. So just scratch your head. <laughs> Coincidence. Hmm. But I, I have to ask you, uh, you worked for Fangoria and you had your own fanzine. Which came first? Did you get the job with Fangoria because of the fanzine? Or? Uh, yeah, I, I did my fanzine. Uh, I, see, uh, I did my first interview for it in 82, and I think I published the first issue in 83. But I know in 82 I did the first bit of work that was required for it, which was interviewing my first celebrity interview. I interviewed um, Joel Reed, the director of Bloodsucking Freaks, and he was my first celebrity interview in my fanzine. Then in my second issue, I drove all the way down to Plantation, Florida, and I interviewed Herschel Gordon Lewis in person at his home in Florida, whereas, you know, for the first issue, I'd interviewed Joel Reed over the phone. So but when, Joel, when Herschel Gordon Lewis told me I was invited to come down to his house and interview him in person, I... I, I thought no, I didn't uh, hesitate. I drove 900 miles down to Florida to meet him. <laughs> I was going to say, how fast did you pack? But, but, that, but that actually had uh, that actually had nothing to do with me getting uh, on with Fangoria. The way I got on with Fangoria was just because um, they were always looking for reporters that could cover s stories that were of interest to them, where uh, in areas of the country where they didn't currently have a reporter. Like if there was something happening in horror news in the New York area where Fangoria's offices were, they weren't going to let me or any other reporter cover it because they had their own staff of writers in New York that could cover anything in that area. But they didn't have a lot of writers or any writer that I know of in Tennessee. And usually there wasn't anything, you know, any horror news in Tennessee. But it just so happened that in 1983, uh, Sandy Howard, the producer of the movie The Devil's Reign, uh, produced a movie. Um, not far from my hometown of Manchester, Tennessee. And he brought a whole bunch of horror stars with him. He, uh, the best one was he brought Richard Johnson, who had just started Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Mm -hmm. And we had him there. He had The director was Don Sharp, the director of several Hammer films like uh, Kiss of the Vampire and Rasputin the Mad Monk with Christopher Lee. And then he also had Robert Powell, who had starred in the... Uh, horror movie uh, Asylum with Herbert Long for Amicus Films. And so there were a few more that were not horror stars, like he had Timothy Bottoms from The Last Picture Show. And, but uh, anyway, he, he brought all these stars with him, and he put them all up in a hotel in my town. And then he announced that he was going to have a press junket, and all local members of the media were invited to come down and interview these any of these stars at a press junket to publicize this movie he was making in my area. And the movie was filmed under the title Secrets of the Phantom Caverns, but when it came out on uh, video and DVD, it was renamed What Waits Below. So if you're looking for it, you know, that's what it's called now. It's called What Waits Below. And he filmed it at some caves in my area because my area is full of caves. There's just all kinds of caves around near where I live. And so, uh, in fact, there's one cave in my own town called The Caverns, which has now turned into a nightclub and performance venue where Bruce Campbell from Evil Dead is actually going to be there in a couple of weeks doing a live show in my town at our local cave. So, cool. uh, so if you're wanting to film a movie in a cave, my town is a place to go because we're just full of caves.
caves and then there's also a lot of waterfalls around here but uh, so I went to this press junket and I immediately requested interviews with uh, Robert Powell, Don Sharp and Richard Johnson since those were the three big horror stars there uh, and, and they told me I could interview Richard Johnson and Robert Powell but I could not interview Don Sharp because he was holed up in his hotel room doing studying the script for the next day shooting they said he was too busy and didn't have time to talk to me so at least they let me interview richard johnson and um robert powell and i'm i did a very i just did a really quick interview with robert powell but i did a really long interview with richard johnson since he was like a horror living legend i mean he started in the haunting for director robert wise and in addition to zombie he was also in that big exorcist mo uh, ripoff movie beyond the door with juliet bills and he was in, he had just been in this movie Screamers from Roger Corman, which was originally known as Island of the Fishman. And he had just made Monster Club with him and Vincent Price and John Carradine. So he just had just a ton of horror movies. So I had a great time interviewing him. And he was amazed that I knew all these horror movies he had made. He thought nobody knew about them. So he was, he was like, uh, sort of seemed to be impressed that I knew, knew so much about his uh, filmography. And so after I did this interview with him, I was going to put it in my own fanzine, but I thought, well, I should just check with Fangoria because, you know, maybe they'd be interview interested in this interview I've got with the star of Zombie. And so I contacted uh, Bob Martin, who at the time was the editor of Fangoria, and he said, yeah, they would definitely be interested in it. So that's how I came to write for Fangoria, by offering them this uh, this article on uh, the Sandy Howard movie with the you know the highlight of the article being my interview with Richard Johnson, and then after that I did several more articles for Fangoria. I covered Stephen King's Cat's Eye for them, where I went down to Wilmington, North Carolina, to De Laurentiis Studios. Uh, while I was in France, I interviewed Jess Franco for Fangoria, and uh, then I also interviewed Tom Savini on the set of Invasion USA. And I interviewed John Waters on the set of Blood Feast 2. And then uh, I was also on the set of uh, this uh, movie called uh, Homesick, which starred uh, Bill Bosley from uh, Devil's Rejects. So I got to be on a lot of great movie sets for Fangoria. But at the same time, I was also doing my own zine, The Splatter Times. Um, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 90% sure, back during my heyday, I had... I bought like all the horror magazines and all the fanzines and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure I had Splatter Times <laughs> at one point. You can, still get, you can still get occasional issues on eBay. Usually on eBay, any given week, there's usually one or two auctions for back issues. I did a, a yearbook with a color. Uh, I did a best of Splatter Times that had a color cover. And that's usually the one that's easiest to find, the one with the color cover. All the other issues were black and white with all the photos and covers in black and white. But we did one issue where it was published by Draculina Publishing, which was the best of. And so it was a little slicker and more expensive with the full color cover. Yeah. Publishing these uh, zines is very expensive. After I did, seven, I did eight issues of Spider Times and then... I picked it up a few years later and ran it for several years as a, as a Facebook page where I did it as a Facebook horror news page. Yeah. See, you, you kind of did it the way I did it um, to where I'm at now. Um, I'm, I, I grew up in the era of uh, public access television. So this show started out as a public access television show back in the day. Go to conventions and interview people and uh, slowly evolved into this. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done a couple of interviews for my friend Larry Underwood on Public Access TV. He's he's like a local horror host in the Nashville area. He's, he plays a character called uh, Dr. Gangrene, and he's had his own Public Access horror show where he introduces horror movies, and then he is also, he's had me as a guest on at least two shows where he would interview me. Yeah. And we would, we would film them at the Public Access Studio in Nashville. Uh, uh, no, I know... No, Doctor, I've seen some of this stuff. Uh, since I started doing all the interviews with horror hosts and stuff, I started finding more and more and more that I had missed growing up. Now I'm like, oh, sweet. I can find all these people. Um, well, you were talking about knowing your stuff back in the day when you worked for Fangoria. I mean, that had to be hard because nowadays everybody could just look up IMDB and it brings you up everything anybody's ever done. Um like I said, I didn't. I wasn't aware that you had worked in some movies that I personally own, or you know, stuff that I watched growing up, or or whatever. Um, you know, I there's somewhere in this room there's a copy of uh, I Spill Your Guts on DVD, and you worked on that one too. So, oh yeah, yeah, I did three movies. I think for James Balsamo, where I did little cameos. So yeah, I'm in that one and two more James Balsamo movies. I think I'm I'm also in a. Catch of the Day and one other one. Now, um, so yeah, cameo for him. I just film it wherever I am and then send him the footage, and then he just edits it into the movie. So even though he's now based in L.A., I don't have to go to L.A. to do one of his movies. I can just and then and then um, also I've I've returned the favor and I put James into two of my movies. James is uh, he's in Shark Exorcist and he's also in my new remake of Cannibal Hookers. Cool. Now, I, I gotta ask. I I remember when Shark Exorcist popped up in my on on my radar, and uh, I'm not gonna lie. I thought it should have been the Sharkcorcist, and not the. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, there's a, a lot of a few people said that the the main or the main reason for that is that hell has to do with the. Marketing that movie was going to be coming out on DVD, and one of the rules of uh, I think marketing, that, at least my rule, is that uh, you should never have a word in the title of your movie that is so long that in order for that word to appear horizontally across the front of your video, each letter would have to be relatively small to fit the whole word in the width of a DVD cover. And with Sharks Resist. There's too many letters in that word, and each letter would have to be relatively small, whereas when you have shark exorcist, you can stack one word on top of the other, and each word only has a small number of letters, which allows each letter to be bigger, and uh, it makes a better impact on a DVD or Blu-ray cover if the letters can be pleasingly large so that they make more of an impact. So that's my one of my rules, although I just prefer shark exorcist, but also I, I, don't, I don't like having any word in the title of any of my movies that's too long, which is going to necessitate having uh, small letters. The small letters don't make any you know, good impact, especially nowadays where most people, you know, where we don't have video stores now, most people, in order to find out what the new horror movies are, they have to scroll through the new listings on uh, Diabolic, Diabolic DVD uh, or on Amazon or eBay, where they're going to be looking at little thumbnail images on their phone. And if you're looking at little thumbnail, you know, thumbnail images, it's more important than ever that the letters in the title of your movie be nice, big, and legible. Wow. You know, I didn't even think about that. That is, 
That's brilliant marketing. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't even have thought about that. Well, when you think about it, I think, think, you know, that's how I find out about a lot of movies by scrolling through listings on my phone. Like one thing I do to keep up with new Blu-rays is I go to Diabolic DVD, which is probably one of the best retail sites for Blu-rays from all over the world. Uh, if you want to find out what is new on the international Blu-ray market, not just from American distributors, but from all the leading uh, international distributors like Imprint from Australia or Arrow from or an indicator from the UK, uh, also the French and the German and the Italian labels. And then, you know, if you go to Diabolic DVD, it gives you a nice overview of what's available in the international market. And again, you're looking at these covers, you're looking at thumbnails or small images on your phone. So it's very important that the title of the movie be nice and legible. <laughs> yeah. Cause uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I was on an Italian movie kick um, about a month ago, watching lots of Italian horror films, uh, Italian uh, Western stuff like that. And they love getting the big long titles. And you're, I mean, you use it simple, you know, shark, exorcist, you know, I don't, I don't even have a case here. You go. You'd be like shark and then exorcist and it would be great positioning, you know, and I, I don't know why I didn't think about that, but damn, that's, uh, you're right. I mean, I, I, I managed a video store. I managed a uh, Hollywood video back in the day. And, you know, you'd always have people coming in, getting movies and stuff. And, you know, I hate to say this, you think that would have been something I would have learned when I, was, when I worked there. But, yeah, that's, damn, that's the... Uh... It really is even helpful in a video store, because in a video store, you may be looking across one or two aisles at uh, movies that are on an aisle one or two aisles away from you. So it's very important that they have a powerful image and uh, have the title in a legible text so that the cover can make an impact even if you're looking at it from one or two aisles away. That's why in addition to my rule about text on a DVD cover, my other rule is you have to have a central image that can register when you see it smaller, when you see it from far away, and you should avoid overcrowding images where you have, you know, like an image where too many people crammed onto the cover, where each head has to be relatively small because you're cramming in too many people. I mean, there was this trend going on a few years ago where they would make all these movies like uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and they would try to put pictures of six or seven actors on the cover. Do you remember that? There was all these yeah, movies yeah, yeah. where they were trying to put pictures of all these actors. And so, uh, you know, when you have all these people on the cover, each head has to be relatively small, and it, uh, it prevents you from having one central image that can make an impact. So I didn't like that trend at all. <laughs> Well, you know, the thing is, is, I'm sitting there looking through some of your movies, and yes, you have your standard, some of it's Photoshop, whatever, but you got, like, I mean, Shark Exorcist, that painted, you know, it, well, it doesn't look paint. I mean, looks painted, I don't know, if is that digital imaging that they've done with that? But, uh, that was done by Devin Whitehead, who's like a really leading horror artist, and yeah, that was, I think, uh, he does a tradition, he does a combination, he does... I think paintings, but he also sometimes digitally enhances his paintings or he gives them, sometimes he gives them a look where it looks like they're airbrushed, but I don't know if he uses a traditional airbrushing. I would think he would probably use digital tools that create the airbrushing effect because nowadays 
you don't need to use the old-fashioned airbrush in order to create an airbrushed effect because there's so many digital tools available to uh, an artist which are way beyond my uh, familiarity because uh, you know I've never done a full color cover I usually if I'm going to have uh, uh, an art on my cover either i'm going to commission it or my distributor is going to commission it usually whenever you have a movie released by wild eye as shark exorcist was then shark then wild eye is going to commission a cover painting from one of their staff artists because wild eye has a great collection of staff artists so you you, you know that if you're going to have your movie distributed well by wild eye it's going to have a great looking cover because that's one of the things they're known for they're known for really great looking covers and uh, SRS Cinema also, they've got some great staff artists too. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the cover painting for the, my new remake of Savage Vengeance that I produced, but uh, they've got a really incredible painting for the cover of that, and it comes out, I believe, in May. Well, it's actually, it's available now. You can pre-order it now, and then I think they will, if you pre-order it now, they're going to ship it in May. But you can go to srscinema.com, and you can order the new Savage Vengeance right now, and it's got a really really striking cover painting uh that really makes a you know instant impact if you look at it a lot of people have been complimenting the, co the cover uh, it seemed like in the 80s when i started most not all but most of my covers were photos photo covers like the covers for uh S cannibal hookers and uh, scream dream and savage vengeance and vampire cop those were all photo covers sometimes like with cannibal hookers those were photos that have been retouched but they were still photo covers. But uh, more recently, in the last few years, painted covers have become much more popular than photo covers. And now most most of my friends that make movies like I do, we're all going more for painted covers, which is, you know, and which means we're either going to deal with a distributor like Wild IRS or a cinema or a Culture Shock, which is sort of the distributor of my new movie, uh, WS Demons. And in the case of that, those companies will sometimes commission a painting for you. Uh, but if you do a movie indie and you're going to do an Indiegogo to raise the money to make the movie, it's really important that you go ahead and commission a painting yourself because nowadays a painting, uh, post, a painted poster is, has become a key element of a successful Indiegogo campaign. And if you don't have this really striking poster image, it makes it harder to have a successful Indiegogo, even though these artists that can do these really incredible paintings are going to charge you usually between three and $500 to do one of these paintings. And then the downside is they don't even let you keep the painting because what they do is they send you a uh, digital high resolution image of the painting that you paid for, but then they keep the original and turn right around and sell the original to make even more money than what you paid them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. so if you, uh, if you hire one of these artists, um, uh, and uh, you want the original painting, then it's going to jack up the price way beyond the standard three to five hundred dollars. So I've never done that. I haven't even asked them how much it would cost for the original. But some of these artists that I've dealt with in the four, like we had uh, Graham Humphreys do a, paint, a cover for for uh, for Cannibal Hookers, and he's like one of the hottest artists in the world doing posters and, and covers. He did. He's done tons of covers for Arrow Video for their Blu-rays. And uh, he's just super, super in demand. And then my new cover is done by Rick Melton in England. Like He's just like Graham Humphreys. They're both in the UK. And uh, Rick is also, you know, one of the most in-demand horror artists on the scene. He does all the covers for Dark Side Magazine. 
and he's done quite a few covers. He's done several Arrow covers, like uh, like uh, Graham did. He did, like for example, the cover for Arrow's release of Dario Argento's Inferno. And so, yeah, when you when you give, when you deal with these artists, don't just automatically expect that they're going to give you the original art for your movie because it it's not it doesn't go down like that. <laughs> Well, um, I have friends that are uh, comic book artists and artists too, and they they tell me they're like, okay, you know, we'll go, okay, we'll paint the painting for this much. Oh, you're licensing it for a, uh, you know, or your movie or your 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 band or whatever. Then it's going to be X amount on top of that. You want the original artwork? that's going to be on top of that. So, goes up and up. I don't blame them. I mean, they got to make a living too. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. smart business for them to uh, keep the painting and resell it because that's that's very shrewd business and. And Rick has a lot of high-end, uh, I know Rick uh, has a lot of high-end customers that will happily pay for his original art. Mm-hmm. And of course, these are, owning this original art is a really super investment. I mean, just think of the people that own, I've run across people over the years that own original paintings that were used for famous monsters of film and covers in the 60s. And these this original art like that, well, that's really worth a fortune if you have one of those original paintings that was used as a famous monsters cover or original painting that was used as a creepy or vampirella cover. Oh yeah. I, uh, I've got a handful of original artwork and I have a cover to a book and I have the print that the original picture and then the print that's taken from that. I got them somewhere floating around here, but, uh, no, you know, I, I want to say, I love the fact that you guys are using original artwork. You're doing painted covers and, and you know, poster artwork now because we had this discussion a while back and I had this discussion on a, on a form on another show uh, about that's the lost art, you know, cause everything's just, you know, photos photoshopped together and it's boring now. And I, I don't, I don't get it, you know, I, I don't I don't like boring posters for movies. So lately some of my distributors have been doing something I really like. They've been getting into the habit of putting uh, slip covers on my Blu-ray releases and the slip covers have a unique cover different than the cover on the actual Blu-ray case. So when you get when you have your movie released with a slip cover, then you're giving the customer two different two unique covers. And uh, sometimes like the new Blu-ray of my 1994 Lesbian Empire movie, Red Lips. They, uh, we, I actually commissioned a painted cover for that that I sent to the distributor, but they ultimately decided to go with a photo cover. So they did two two photos. We have one photo that's uh, on the slipcase, and then we have another paint, uh, photo that's on the actual uh, Blu-ray carton. But then um, I have uh, my other uh, distributor, Culture Shock, for both of the movies that they put out of mine, they release a double feature of my movies, Hooker with the Hacksaw and Cannibal Hookers. And for that one, I had commissioned a painting from an Italian artist, which they use for the Blu-ray carton. But then on the actual slipcase, they then turned around and commissioned a painting of their own, which uh, is on the cover, which you know, features images from both of the movies. So, so that way, the people uh, who bought that uh, Blu-ray actually got two unique painted covers, one on the slipcase and one on the uh, actual Blu-ray carton. And they're doing it again exactly like that for my new one that comes out in May, uh, Debbie Does Demons. Uh, I commissioned the original painting from Brick Melton that appears on the Blu-ray carton, and then they commissioned an additional completely different painting 
that appears on the slipcase, only they did it one better. This time they'd commission two original paintings, one for the front of the slipcase and one for the back of the slipcase. So we have two of our actresses featured on the front of the slipcase and another one of our actresses featured in a painting on the back of the slipcase. So, so for that release, the customer is going to get three completely different paintings. Cool. That 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 is that Debbie does demons is one I'm looking forward to because uh, I had an interview with uh, Angel a few weeks back. Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah, and she uh, actually she plays Debbie. Yep, and um, she you know sent me to her thing. I found her like you know the the her reel, and I watched little bits of Debbie does demons. I was like, I gotta find this, and then I found out that it wasn't available. So I reached out to her. She told me I found you. And then you told me it was going to be out in May. So I'm like, yes, cool. I'm going to order it then. <laughs> yeah, if you keep checking the cultureshockreleasing.com website, they'll, uh, or check, keep checking with their Facebook page, uh, they'll make the announcement when it's going to be available for pre-order. But they said it's going to be very soon. They said the wait is almost over when you can start pre pre-ordering it. Cool. Make a note of that so I don't forget, because I will forget. Working very closely with them on uh, supervising the uh, paintings for the slipcase and getting all that in line. For the slipcase, basically what I, I did for the front cover was I, I actually got to participate in the uh, front painting, even though I didn't really paint it. What I did was I designed it, and I told them exactly what the images should be and how the images should be positioned. and what I wanted to see, and um, and then they executed my design. So for the cover on the front of the slipcase, it's a painting that I designed, and then they got a professional artist then to paint my design. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's the, I, like I said, I've only seen the one picture. I believe it's the uh, uh, picture that's on. The Rick the Melton one. Uh, let's see here. I'm on your IMDb. Debbie Does Demons. And... Uh, that one. Yeah, that's the one. That's the Rick Melton painting, and that's what will be on the uh, actual Blu-ray carton when you remove the slip cut cover. That's what you'll see. Neat, cool, cool. And, and that shows that shows Angel with the axe, and then it shows Jessa Flux on the cover of that. The uh, the nice part about it is that man, you think floating around here. Uh, this is bad. I have to keep stealing my kids' video games here. Uh, was when they when they do like the cover here, and then you would flip this over, and there'd be another insert inside them. Mm -hmm. I've seen people do that. That that's what I really like. Um, I have to ask you, we're, we, you you have to love the the old school uh, artwork on posters. What's your favorite old school movie poster? Uh, well, I think one of the greatest posters of all time is the uh, nineteen sixty three uh, Vincent Price poster for. Mask of the Red Death, which was a, uh, it wasn't so much a painting, it was more of a pen and ink drawing that was colored, but it, where they show Vincent Price, where his face is made up of all these tiny images of scenes from the movie, where when you look at it close, it seems to be a cluster of various images from the movie, but then you step back from it, and all of a sudden, they all come together to make Vincent Price's face. So that's one of the most ingenious posters I've ever seen. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... Vincent Price made the series of Edgar Allan Poe movies in the 60s uh, for Roger Corman, the director, and uh, he made uh, 
Fall of the House of Usher, Pit and the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, The Raven, Mask of the Red Death, The Haunted Palace, and Tomb of Ligia. And they all had great posters, but the one for Mask of the Red Death, that's really a standout poster. It's one of the best posters, I think, of all time. And then another favorite poster of mine is, uh, there's this artist that I'm a huge fan of, Robert McGintis. He's a, he was a very big uh, poster artist of the 60s. He's probably best known for doing the cover for the poster for Breakfast at Tiffany's with Audrey Hepburn. But uh, that more genre-oriented, he uh, also did a lot of the James Bond posters, like uh, for the Only Live Twice and other James Bond movies. But uh, my personal favorite of all his posters is his original 1968 poster for Barbarella. And so, and actually, he's uh, he's still alive. He's in his mid-90s, but uh, you can contact his uh, website, and his son will usually write, write respond back to you but yeah robert mcginnis he did these he did quite a lot of great posters another big one he did is uh, the poster for innocent bystanders with donald pleasance and stanley baker and uh, but yeah if you look him up he's he's got a great collection of posters he did and he's one of the few living legend movie poster artists that is still alive you know most some of the others like reynold reynold brown who did a lot of the classic american international posters in the 50s and 60s he's no longer with us but you know, Robert McGinnis, he, he's, I think he's in his mid-90s, but he's still still, still there and still works a little bit. <laughs> I'm sitting here. You, you got me wondering. I, I have some posters sitting here. Uh, Tower of Evil? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's good book for Tower of Terror, yep, which Tower. was also known as, that was also known as Horror on Snape Island. Yeah. I have the uh, trailer to that movie on 35 millimeter. I have a re I have several reels of thirty five millimeter trailers, and that's on one of my trailer reels. Back when the, my local drive-in still had thirty five millimeter projectors, I would bring my trailer reels there sometimes, and he would run my trailers for me <laughs> on the big drive-in screen. Of course, now they can't do that anymore because every drive-in in my area has got rid of their thirty five millimeter projectors and brought in digital projectors. So those days of being able to Bring my uh, used to be when theaters had 35 millimeter projectors, I would collect trailers and movies in 35 millimeter, and then when I would bring my prints around to my friends that own drive-ins, and they would run them for me on their art night on days when they were closed to the public. So I would have private shows of my features that I had on 35 and my trailers. So those days are gone. You can't do that anymore because there's I think there's only one theater in all of Nashville near where I live that still has a 35 millimeter projector. That's the Belcourt Cinema, and I, every other theater the, has got rid of their 35, and they've all, all switched to digital projection. The Belcourt, though, has basically got everything. They've got 35, 16 millimeter, and digital, so they have they can show a movie no matter what the format because they have all the projectors. That's uh, my my friends make fun of me with that one. Uh, I have 35 millimeter. Uh, I have like I don't know, like 20 uh, trailers of the 35 millimeter trailers. I had friends that worked in the movies, uh, worked at the movie theaters from the like the mid '90s into like the mid 2000s. I don't have nothing really cool, like I don't have nothing, you know. But uh, you know, I have Grindhouse, the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino. I have that on 35 millimeter. Um, but yeah, I have several uh, reels of these 35 millimeter because these all these drive-ins that I used to go to, they would either sell me or just give me their 35 millimeter trailers. You know, they didn't think anything about it. And then 
I would also order some on eBay. On eBay, you can still buy 35 millimeter trailers. So, but the but the uh, old classic Hora ones from the 60s and 70s, those things are ridiculous now. They're it's hard to find a classic Hora trailer in 35. It's uh, less than a hundred dollars, and even if it's got color that's completely turned red, they still want a hundred dollars or more for them nowadays. Well, it's. I know that uh, a while back I was um, I got an eight millimeter uh, projector and uh, a sixteen millimeter projector a while back, and uh, you can find movies all day for both of them if they're not horror or sci-fi. You go to horror sci-fi, you're gonna pay out the out, out the out the wazoo for them. Well, I've got two sixteen millimeter projectors, but neither of them work very good, so I don't really know anybody I can take them to that can get them fixed for me so i've got a few 16 millimeter things but not as much as i used to but yeah i was looking on ebay uh, last year somebody had a 16 millimeter print of taste of blood of dracula and they wanted like two thousand dollars for it and it wasn't even the uncut version it was the censored american version because in america that movie was censored in order to get a gp rating back when they called it gp before they switched it to pg and so to buy a censored print of that it was like two thousand dollars, so I don't know if they ever sold it at that price. Well, it, it kicks me in the butt. Is our, our local library years ago before they moved, they sold off all their old sixteen millimeter like education, all the films that they would let schools borrow for like next to nothing. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have known that because I would have went in there and bought everything, even though I didn't have a camera yet. So, yeah, my local library used to have sixteen millimeter stuff back that I would. But they never had a, they had a terrible selection of movies. They didn't have any horror movies. They didn't have any sci-fi movies. They just had, you know, mostly movies that you don't want to see. And yeah. The only one I ever rented from them was a Mickey Rooney movie called The Comic, which was okay, but they didn't really have, and one of my Facebook friends is in it. I'm, friend, I'm Facebook friends with this actress, uh, Nina Wayne, and she's in The Comic with Mickey Rooney, so... Uh, but uh, but they didn't have anything where you would really get excited about. I guess the uh, I guess they must have had a policy of not buying any horror movies for the library. Now, see, now they all carry DVDs. At least they will buy horror movies now. At least if it's a a famous one like The Shining or something from Stephen King, they'll get those. Yeah, they're not gonna. The lot the library is not gonna buy a Grindhouse movie. You'd probably be surprised. At least ours is weird. The, 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 I've walked in there and I'm like I never thought in a million years you guys would have this movie and you... oh well you have a much better library than me my, my, my library has got very, very mainstream taste they don't have anything that would be slightly offensive oh, um, my library when I was a kid I the one movie I would rent all the time that I knew they had was and it was free I would rent Clockwork Orange because I watched that movie at least once a week and they, they had that so i mean i know it's clockwork orange and it's a little mainstream but you know in the 90s in uh in the uh, middle of ohio that was a big deal when that movie first that was a big deal when that movie first came out um i remember how excited i was when it opened uh in our local theater i think it, uh, it opened in 72 and I think our theater is open at big cities in 72, but the local theater where I lived was a little late getting it. And I don't even think we got it till 73. So 
back back in those days uh, in the 70s when a big movie opened it was it's not like today where when a big movie opens today like last friday the new screen movie opened and it opened in every city in america that has a movie theater at the same time so if you lived in a small town your theater got it just as quickly as the big theaters in new york and la and chicago but in the 60s it wasn't like that at all in the 60s when a big movie opened they opened first and New York and LA, and then it took a few weeks for them to open in other big cities, and it might take months for them to finally make their way down to the small towns. And sometimes you'd have to wait a year before a big movie would finally make it to your little town. So it was completely different distribution. This whole idea of a movie opening in every theater in America at the same time was completely unheard of in the 60s and 70s. That's that's more of a recent thing that's just happened in the last twenty or so years. Well, yeah, because I mean, I, I I live like I said, I live in a small town in Ohio, and when I grew up, we had the theater that had two two screens. It started out as one screen, became two screens, so you got two movies a week. And if those movies were hot, they didn't bring the next movie in. You know, it was you had to wait. You know, if that movie was hot. We may not have got it for the first month it was out until, you know, the the current movies had got cold enough that they could justify bringing in a new movie. And I remember watching movies, you know, month still a month after they came out in theaters elsewhere in the United States. But, you know, that's mid-80s, maybe. Probably like 80. Yeah, I live about 15 minutes from a drive-in that has three screens, and each screen always shows a double feature. So if there's a movie that's hot, like the Avatar movie, they'll keep the, uh, that movie on at least one of their screens for maybe a month if it's really hot. But they'll, they'll, they still got two other screens to show all the other new stuff. But then there's a... My town that I live in is so small it doesn't even have a movie theater. I have to drive 10 miles to the next town down the road to even go to a movie theater but um the uh there's a town about 20 minutes from me called winchester and they have they still have their original historic downtown movie theater that's been there over 60 years and it's got two screens the downstairs and the upstairs and uh it doesn't matter how hot a movie is when a new movie opens and needs to have a theater to show it they'll they'll bring in the new movie so and they'll take the other movie and just shove it upstairs. So whenever a movie is brand new, on the first week, they'll play it in their downstairs, the bigger theater. And then the very next week, if there's a new movie that needs their downtown screen, it doesn't matter how big the uh, the other movie is, they'll shove the other movie upstairs. And then the third week, if there's another big movie that needs the downstairs, they'll, they'll basically the hot movie is shoved right out. So that's one theater that resists that change. They do resist the trend of keeping hot movies forever. They, they, they're pretty good at cycling out the movies really quickly and bringing in, making sure every week they're showing downstairs whatever is the hottest, newest movie in the country. Yeah, because I had this discussion with my buddy a while back. When he was growing up in the town about 10 miles south of here, um, Pete's Dragon was hot, you know, Back in the day, it was that Disney live action with the cartoon, you know. And um, that movie ran for like a year and a half in the same theater. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it yeah, was a hot like movie. that would be unheard of around here. Yeah. But that was probably 70, like six, something like that. So. Yeah, I've basically been 
for the last few months, I've been going through newspaper archives just basically to see if my memory is correct of where I saw certain movies in the 60s and 70s because I, all my life I've been thinking that I knew what theater I saw certain movies in and lately when I've been going through newspaper archives of the 60s and 70s to see the ad for those movies and see exactly what theater they showed in, I sometimes find out my memory was completely off and that I didn't see it in the theater I saw it, thought I saw it in, so I've been going through these archives, but also I've been going through these archives and finding out how long the local theaters in Nashville would keep hot movies, and I've been very surprised that some movies I thought would have been a movie they should have kept for two or three weeks, they've been kicking out after a week. Like pretty much all the Vincent Price movies only played a week in Nashville. All the Vincent Price movies that I love never seemed to get held over in the 60s and 70s. But uh, this sex movie that American International did called Three in the Attic about three girls that kidnap this guy and put him in the attic just so that they can bang him over and over again until he dies. Uh, that movie ran five weeks at the downtown Paramount Theater, the same theater that we used to show all the Vincent Price and Hammer movies. So I was surprised that that movie lasted five weeks there where all the movies I like only lasted a week. And uh, I've been trying to find out what movie has the record for lasting the longest in Nashville. So far from the articles I've been going through, it looks like one of the winners would be summer of 42. It lasted 19 weeks at this one theater in Nashville, which is like ridiculous. And in comparison, Dirty Harry only lasted 14 weeks. And I would have thought Dirty Harry was more popular than summer of 42, but apparently not, not at least not in Nashville. Different, different market, I guess. I <laughs> Uh, yeah, you you'd assume, but then Dirty Harry. I I know if I put Dirty Harry in the theater right now, people would still come and go see it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a big hit, but just not as big a hit around here. I guess it's summer of '42. <laughs> now, I, I've got to ask you. You you are a movie buff going way back. What's the movie that got you in the film? Well, the I can remember pretty much every movie that my parents took me to see at the theaters before I got a driver's license because. Uh, before I got a driver's license, I was at the mercy of my parents to see movies, you know, uh, especially when we moved to this town that had a movie theater. Uh, so for there was three years when I was little where we lived in a town that had a downtown movie theater and I could walk to this theater. And so for three years, I was no longer dependent on my parents. I could walk to the theater and see movies uh, on my own, even though I was only nine or 10 years old. And then the theater closed. Uh, yeah, when I was 10, this theater went out of business. And then after that, I was totally back to being dependent on my parents. And so basically, from the time I saw my very first movie in a theater, which was uh, Peter Pan, until the last movie I saw before I got my driver's license, I still remember exactly every movie I saw in a theater. And the movie that got me uh, interested in movies was probably the second movie I saw in a theater, which was... Uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, the Ray Harryhausen movie. That was the one that got me really excited. I liked all the stop motion dragons and monsters and everything. So I still there was a period there where I was just obsessed with any movie that had a dragon in it. So any movie that had a dragon in it, I wanted to see. So I went to see Seven Faces of Dr. Lou because that had a dragon in it. And I saw Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm because there was a dragon in that. And I saw Jack the Giant Killer because there was a big dragon at the end of that. And, uh, so that used to be my obsession was to see all the dragon movies. And then 
as I got a little bit older, that sort of segue into a horror obsession. What got me interested in horror, though, was my parents would take me to, my parents would never take me to horror movies when I was little. So the only ones I saw were the ones that were on TV that were pretty harmless, like the old Universal ones, like the original Dracula and Frankenstein ones, which were, you know, not even scary back then when I was little. But um, what got me into horror really was my parents sometimes would take me to see a family movie, but before the family movie, they would show previews of coming movies, horror movies that were coming to the theater. And so even though my parents didn't like it, I could sit and see these previews. And one time they showed a preview for this horror movie called House of the Damned, where one of the creatures in it was a guy that had no legs and he walked on his hands and carried a knife in his mouth so that he could creep up to your bed, walking on his hands and stab you to death. And that movie freaked me out so much. I think that was the one movie that got me definitely obsessed with horror movies. It would be a decade before I would finally see this movie, but just the free the preview, just the preview alone, freaked me out. <laughs> no, okay, I gotta ask. Now, did it did it freak you out more once you finally got to see the movie, or was the what was in your head from the trailer still creepier than what you saw when it finally when you finally saw it? Yeah, when I saw the trailer when I was like about ten, you know, it definitely had the power to freak me out. But when I finally saw it, it was decades later, and it was. You know, I, when I finally saw the movie, there was really nothing scary in it. It was hopelessly tame. But the I've looked at the preview. The preview is on YouTube now, and I can still see that preview. The preview, I think, is still scarier than the actual movie. Because in the preview, they make it look like the little arm, the legless man is going to creep up on the bed and stab this woman while she sleeps. Whereas in the movie, he just sort of comes into a room to scare her, and he doesn't do anything. So it's sort of a letdown that he did not try to stab her in her bed. <laughs> uh, um, so do you have, I always ask this, do, do you have a go-to movie? The movie that, that you can always watch whenever? Oh, yeah, I have several. I mean, I'm especially my favorite horror movies would probably be a tie between uh, the Vincent Price movie, The Abominable, Do Abominable Dr. Fives, and then uh, I love Hammer movies. My favorite Hammer movie is uh, Dracula is risen from the grave. I, I guess I like that because it's the first Hammer horror movie that I ever saw in a theater. But um, I also like it because it's probably the. I do think it is the best movie Hammer made. Although a lot of people would disagree with me. There, there was like seven films in Hammer's Dracula series with Christopher Lee. There was Horror of Dracula, Dracula Prince of Darkness, Dracula Risen from the Grave, Taste of Blood of Dracula. Scars of Dracula, Dracula 80, 1972, and Satanic Rites of Dracula. And then even Dracula makes an appearance in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, but he was no longer played by Christopher Lee. Nope. But I thought of all those movies in the series, most people say the first one, Horror of Dracula, was the best. But I think um, Horror of Dracula is really, it's got a great first 15 minutes and a great climax. But the middle of the movie is really draggy and only has one really good scene where they stake, stake this vampire girl in her coffin and drive a stake through her heart. But uh, it's got a lot of dead weight in that movie, whereas Dracula's Risen of the Grave is just perfect from beginning to end. It never has a dull scene. It just has a lot of great forward momentum. And Christopher Lee is actually creepier in that movie than in any of the other Dracula movies. He's actually the scariest in that movie. It's got a lot of scenes that were very disturbing to watch, even, when I, even though I was... Uh, 14 or 15 when I saw it the first time it still has some scenes that are disturbing to watch well, even though it was rated G it still managed to be disturbing like it's got one scene where Christopher Lee uh, 
digs up a coffin at a cemetery and dumps the corpse of this sexy girl out who's already started to decompose. And he dumps her corpse out of this coffin so that he can use the coffin for himself. And that, that scene seemed a little unsettling because the girl that he's dumping out of the coffin, you could tell that she was a hottie, but she's already started to decompose and her skin's all multicolored. So I thought that was a little disturbing scene that he would show such disrespect for her corpse just because he wanted a coffin for himself. Hey, he's got, he's got to put, he's got to hide from the sun. So, you know, it, it's funny cause, uh, I, I grew up loving hammer. Films. Those are, those are two of my big favorites. I'm up. And, uh, um, okay. My, you know, there's so many good hammer films. I mean, I also like brides of Dracula and I like all the films in the Frankenstein series, like evil of Frankenstein and Frankenstein created woman and Frankenstein must be destroyed. And, then they made a trilogy about lesbian vampires, which had vampire lovers, lust for a vampire, and twins of evil. I love all those. Then they made Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde with Martine Beswick, who's in my documentary. So she's the only Hammer star I can say I've actually worked with. And so, uh, and she made a lot of great Hammer movies. She's also in A Million Years BC, where she has a cat fight with Raquel Welch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just I watched the documentary a while back. What's the... the the hammer documentary it's on i think it's on tubi and that's a really good one where they talk about the rise and fall of hammer films um I, i'm i'm not gonna lie i'm, I'm a little biased uh, because i always tell everybody because my name is paul christopher lee so i tell everybody that i'm named after christopher lee i'm not uh but it, it's it seems like i can i mean one of my best friends uh is actually named christopher lee so i actually know a guy named christopher lee that's cool. Uh, Christopher Lee made these, uh, his Dracula series sort of had bad luck toward the end of them. Because like I said, Christopher Lee made seven of these Dracula movies for Hammer. And the first several always got really great distribution in America. And they would play at all the theaters. Like uh, um, the first four were distributed by major studios. And uh, the last, uh, Dracula's Rusin from the Grave and Taste of the Dracula were both distributed by Warner Brothers. So when Hammer made their uh, fifth one, Scars of Dracula, uh, it was much cheaper looking than all the others. And because of that, Warner Brothers refused to distribute it. So they had to find a really cheap distributor that would put it out. And so uh, the cheap distributor still managed to get it well distributed. And uh, so then the next time Hammer made a Dracula movie, they uh, upped the budget or I think a little bit or made it it looked much better. They hired a really world-class cinematographer, Dick Bush, to shoot it, who had shot Tommy for Ken Russell. And so because they had such a good cinematographer and more production value, Warner Brothers said, okay, we will distribute this one because it looks so much better than Scars of Dracula. But then when they made the seventh and last Christopher Lee movie, Satanic Rites of Dracula, they didn't hire as good a cinematographer again, and Warner Brothers again refused to distribute it. So it was made in 72 or 73, and Warner Brothers said, we're not touching it. They actually they ended up distributing it in overseas markets, but they would not release it in America. So it went for years and years and years that I was desperate to see this last Christopher Lee Dracula movie, and they would not distribute it. So um, I got desperate, so I basically got the international phone directory, found the phone number for Hammer Films, and I knew that Michael Carreras was the 
head of Hammer, so I just called Hammer Films directly <laughs> and got hold of Michael Carreras, who ran the company in the 70s, and so that I could ask him when I could see Drac the last Dracula movie. And he was really friendly to me and told me that how Warner Brothers had not <laughs> picked up their option to distribute it, and he said hopefully it would be up before long where I could see it, and then I think in 78, a very cheap American company finally did pick it up, and I finally got to see it. So it took like five years for it to be released in America, but I finally did get to see it. Although the American distributor changed the title to it, and they changed the title to uh, Count Dracula and His Vampire Brides. And then when I did see it, it was a little disappointing. It wasn't, I thought it was probably the worst one of the seven. <laughs> that, 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 that happens a lot. You get these movies that you're, you know, you're really pumped to see. Something happens, it gets delayed, it gets, you know, only European releases, especially back in the day. And then by the time you finally get it, and you're like, yes, I finally get it. And it's not as good as I hoped it would be. Uh... Yeah, you don't really see that nowadays. Nowadays, if there's a new movie that's out, you can see it pretty quickly. You're not going to be denied seeing it. If, even if it doesn't get U.S. Re or release, you can always go to one of these foreign Blu-ray sites and order it from there. You know, like, for example, all the new Roman Polanski movies are not getting any American distribution anymore. But you can still get them because they're all available from... Uh, foreign distributors like he made this movie called based on a true story that i wanted to see and uh it wasn't released in america but i found out there was a spanish company called amazon uh, the, uh, it's the amazon spanish company called amazon.es and i found out they had it available uh, with english subtitles so you know, that's how it is for most of these movies if there's a movie you want to see now you can usually find somebody somewhere in the world that's putting it out you're not going to be denied seeing it for years and years but yeah, but this was a common thing in the '60s, '70s. There was all these movies I wanted to see, and some of them it took me decades to see because once they played in theaters, I, you know, they just disappeared. And and then when the video market came along, if they didn't get released on video, you were screwed. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, because people and and I have to explain this like, man, you guys get instant gratification. You can pretty much find every movie you want to see somewhere. I was like, I remember when I wanted to see uh, Mark of the Vampire, the old uh, Bela Lugosi movie, and it took me... Well, that was hard for a few years to see. That, yeah, that was a hard one. Yeah. Um, and then it's still the cut version, because you can't find... In the early 70s, Mark of the Vampire was... In the early 70s, Mark of the Vampire was given a national theatrical re-release by MGM, and they paired it with two other movies... The uh, Frederick March version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the Boris Karloff movie Mask of Fu Manchu. And they put all three of them on a triple feature and they released them nationwide and they played at theaters all over the country. They even came to my little town. So I got to see Mark of the Vampire in a theater with a perfect 35 millimeter print. But then after that, it kind of disappeared. And back this, and this was in the early 70s and there was not even any video market at the time. So after that, that, it was just like years and years before I ever got to see it again because when they started putting movies out on video in the early uh, 80s, uh, Mark of the Vampire was not one of the ones that got put out on video. It was like years and years and years later before it finally became available and it, and it was a long wait to be able to see it again. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I, I, I remember reading about it in a... a like a, a vampire book when I was in probably junior high 
And then I remember trying to find it in high school because I, I knew all the, the people that owned all the local video stores because I went to all of them. And they're like, no, nah, it's not available. It's not available. It's not available. Um, and then me and my buddy were at a comic book show in Detroit, I believe. And uh, there's a guy selling, you know, I hate to say it's bootleg movies, out of print stuff. And we went up there and he's like, I've got, um, at that time, Freaks. He had, uh, Matt, um, you know, Mark of the Vampire, uh, Spider Baby, a bunch of stuff that was all out of print. And uh, my one buddy jumped on all of it, and that was the first time I got to see them after just reading about them. And uh, then, of course, you find out how much of it was cut out and what you don't get to see and that nobody will probably ever see, and it's it's depressing. Well, for years and years, Famous Monsters was running photos from Mark of the Vampire just to drive people crazy because they ran all these great-looking photos from it of Bela Lugosi with a bullet wound in his head mm -hmm. or of the, the vampire girl from the movie Carol Borland that plays his sidekick where she can fly through the room, you know, and sprout vampire wings or whatever. And they would run all these photos for years in Famous Monsters long before it was theatrically re-released in the early 70s. So for years, Famous Monsters had been teasing us with all these photos from it and making people really want to see it. And then, so I did get to see it. I saw it the one time when it was in my local theater. And then after that, it was literally decades before I could see it again. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And if I remember right, Famous Monsters used to run pictures from London after midnight all the time, too. And we've never seen yeah, that. Yeah, we still haven't seen that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, there's a lot of photos that they would run in there that would make me obsessed with these movies that they ran photos of. They One time they ran a full-page photo from this italian movie called the ape woman and i couldn't find anything about this movie so for years i was just excited to see this movie but i couldn't track it down anywhere and then finally um in 1985 i saw where the director of the ape woman was going to be the guest at the miami film festival and i was living in florida at the time so i went down there to meet him so at least i got to meet the director but i still didn't get to see the ape woman because he was there to show another movie so it was like probably later in the 80s, a little bit after that, that finally I had a friend in Italy that told me that the ape woman had been shown on Italian TV, and he taped it off Italian TV for me and sent me a copy, which was a PAL format video, which I couldn't even play on my video machine. So I had to find a friend that had a PAL format machine where I could even watch this tape. So I finally got to see it, and then when I saw it, I saw that it wasn't really even a horror movie. It was about a man who finds a girl that has... Uh, hair all over her face where she basically has a beard and so he gets her and puts her in a circus freak show and claims she's an ape woman when really all it is is a woman that has a beard so i was a little disappointed that it wasn't even a horror movie after years and years of famous monsters making me think it was a horror movie uh well i hate to say this but a lot of those um back in the day would, would um van Gogh was bad at it and uh, uh, famous monsters were bad at. It. They would take the, the the movies that were more sci-fi than horror, but they'd always market them like they're over here in the horror genre. And then you get them, and you're like, "That's not a horror movie," or, or it'd be an out-and-out -out drama when it was all said and done. You know, it's yeah. There's a lot of movies that are drama, but they a lot of people would consider them horror because they may have a few horror scenes, like there's a relationship drama film called possession but uh, horror fans love it because it does have a few 
horror scenes. It has this. Have you seen it? Yeah. Where the woman gives birth to this monster that then grows up to be like an octopus man and she has sex with it. Yep. So horror fans love this movie, even though it's mainly a relationship drama. Yeah. It's like, uh, watch this couple fall apart, and then we're going to introduce this weird monster into it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the amount of movies that you, you, you've you worked on, um, now, do you, do you, do you have a, a genre of movies that you haven't worked in yet that you would love to work in? Well, uh, during the 90s, I worked in a lot of genres away from horror, because in the 90s, I, I kept getting offers to direct uh movies for other producers that were shooting on film with bigger budgets but they were never doing horror movies so like uh first i worked for the uh, producer in atlanta that put up uh he gave me six figure budgets for a series of movies he refused to do horror movies so he told me i could write and direct these movies for him he just told me he wanted me to write a murder mystery an erotic thriller and an action movie so i did one of each, I did one action movie called Demolition Highway, which was sort of an action biker movie. I always wanted to make a biker movie, so I put I put lots and lots of bikers in this movie. And then I did a erotic thriller with Margot Hemingway, and then I did a murder mystery with uh, Virginia Nielsen and Dana Plato and Lynn Lowry from I Drink Your Blood and Cat People. And then, um, and then after that, I was offered to direct a martial arts movie by this producer that was big into martial arts. So that was something new. I'd never done a martial arts movie. Then right after that, I was offered to direct a Civil War movie by this uh, producer that was a Civil War fanatic, and he gave me a six-figure budget to make a... He wanted me to make a three-hour Civil War movie because he said he wanted it to be a TV miniseries. So I told him, well, I'll do it, but I don't think you're going to find a distributor that will put out a three-hour movie. Most distributors want these movies to be 90 minutes or 75 minutes, something like that. So I made it, and he did find a TV channel that showed it as a miniseries over two nights. But then after that, when it came time to put it out on uh, DVD, the DVD distributor only would put it out uh, as a 90-minute movie. So what what we ended up doing was our distributor chopped it in two and made two movies out of it and put it out as a basically a part one and a part two movie. So part one is called Battle for Blood and Honor, and part two is called Battle for Glory. So... Uh, and then the they didn't chop it in two right down the middle. They did it where there's a lot of overlapping scenes where it doesn't matter which part you watch. Either each part is designed to be self-contained and would make sense. So even if you only watch the second one, it's supposed to make sense if you haven't seen the first one. But I was upset because they chopped out a lot of. There were still quite a few scenes I liked that didn't make it into either version. So I still would like to have my original two and a half hour version released. I'm tempted. I may just get a friend of mine to put it on YouTube for me so that people can at least see it because I still think my original two-and-a-half-hour edit is better than either of the DVDs. And then I had a lady that hired me to make a kitty movie, so that was another thing I hadn't done before. She told me she'd give me twenty-five grand if I would make her a kitty movie, so I, I pitched her kitty movie ideas, and the one that she accepted was my idea for a movie called Space Kid, which was sort of like a variation of E.T., so... I did that for her. So I did just all these movies and genres that I'd never done before just because I was dealing with various producers that were very specific about what they wanted to do. And then finally I found a producer 
who uh, would hire me to do horror movies. So I worked for this producer, Phil Newman, and he had been an actor in several of my movies, like he had been in Vampire Cop, and he had been in Savage Vengeance as the main maniac. And he was also, he ran a used car lot, so he was able to put together a six-figure budget, and so he hired me to uh, write and direct a horror movie for him. And then he he did want to put some celebrities in it, so he got Robert Zadar and William Smith to be in it, so at least we had a couple of names, especially Robert Zadar, who's known, known to horror fans because of Maniac Cop. And so we shot that and shot it on film, and we had Brett Piper do the uh, special gore effects, and so we had a fairly decent budget. We hired the guy from the pyrotechnic guy from WWE wrestling to do pyrotechnics for us, click car explosions. And then he also, this, when I wrote the script, the producer gave me a list of murders and told me that my script should incorporate all these murders the way he described them. So that was the only guideline he gave me to go through. And so one murder, he said, I want to have one murder where the killer has a bazooka and blows up a couple while they're sitting in their car, blows up their car with a bazooka. He said, I want to have one murder where the killer has a power drill and drills a hole through the victim's head. And then he just, I want to have one scene where a girl is stripped naked and painted to death in an auto body paint shop so that she asphyxiates to death. And so I had this list of murders that I had to just write my script for each. My script included all these murders he had requested. <laughs> okay, that's, that's weird. So that's an unusual way to do a movie, but I was just so happy to have finally found a producer that would hire me to do a horror movie that I just wasn't going to complain. <laughs> like, I'm making a horror. Hell yeah. I got this. Um, that, and right after have... I did Dorm of the Dead, I, uh, my friend Jackie Hall wanted to know when we were going to do another movie because she had started Dorm of the Dead. And I told her, well, if you'll go out and raise the money for another one, we'll do one right away. And damned if Jackie didn't go right out and raise 30 grand in two weeks from one producer and she said okay i've raised 30 grand for you let's do it so so i, I basically met with jackie's uh, investor and i pitched him on ideas because basically i had to pitch him on horror movie ideas and see which one he would approve and the one he approved was uh, my idea for chainsaw cheerleaders so that's how we came to do that so that was that was probably the last movie i've done for a uh, major investor since then i've been doing movies either as a director for hire for a video company like i've done some for wild eye where they basically hire me to make movies for them or i've done them uh where we raise the money on indiegogo which is a lot less have uh, it's a much better way of doing it than dealing with these producers that lay down zillions of rules because when you work or do it raise a movie and raise the money on indiegogo the people that contribute to you aren't giving you zillions of rules you have to follow goes back when I did movies for producers they just gave me tons of rules and like the producer of my Civil War movie told me it had to be PG no nudity because I'm going to show this movie to my wife and so <laughs> we had to make sure that we did not offend his wife <laughs> uh, see I, I, I could imagine that that you know working for yourself is freeing but you know working for you know somebody else where you know you just go in you go you get your 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 paycheck you know you can do what you enjoy and it's not really your responsibility but then i'm like the fact that somebody can just take everything that you've just done away from you and you just got to be like ah okay i'm good with that and just walk on because that's theirs it's you know i don't know 
I, I just find it. Well, yeah, that's a, that does irritate me about the movies I did for these producers because since they put up all the money into these movies, they own them, and so um, and then the problem with these producers is now they're very. Um, none of them seem to be very motivated about getting these movies re-released in new versions. Like all these movies I did for these various producers, they all came out on DVD, but now you know it's a perfect time to have these movies re-released on Blu-ray. And none of these producers are seem motivated to even talk to distributors about having them re-released. Where there's a lot of companies like uh, Vinegar Syndrome and Arrow and Vinegar, uh, Culture Shock and different ones that are interested in putting out older movies from the 80s and 90s. But none of these producers I dealt with are seem motivated at all to even explore getting these movies re-released. So I guess these movies are just going to never be seen again if. People should hold on to the DVDs because all these producers I dealt with, none of them, like the guy who did the martial arts movie, I keep nagging him occasionally. Have you checked? You, you know, I told him you, you know, you own all the rights to this movie. You got it back from your original distributor. Have you talked to anybody about re-releasing it on Blu-ray? And he just always acts like that would be too much trouble for him. So I don't know. It's too bad these producers aren't motivated. Some of them are really rich anyway, so they just can't be bothered for a licensing deal that would only make them a few thousand dollars. Like. There's this woman that owns two movies that I worked on that both were shot in 35 millimeter. And I've tried to get her daughter to get her interested in talking to distributors. I have a, actually a distributor that would love to put her movies out on Blu-ray, but uh, she uh, won't even talk to anyone or communicate with anyone about it. She, Cause she's a real estate millionaire and just the tiny amount of money she would make on licensing these movies is just not worth her effort apparently. So that's a problem when you deal with these rich investors. You know, they're just sometimes not very motivated. <laughs> well, it drives me nuts, and, and it, it drives my wife nuts because I'm, I'm a collector. But the movies that just, you know, there's so much stuff that came out in the 70s, 80s, or even the early 90s on VHS, and, you know, some of it kind of hit DVD, but so many people just don't care at a certain point. You know, sometimes you'll find a movie that'll pop up on Plex or it'll pop up on Tubi, and but there's no physical copy of it out there. Um, and you know, I hate to say this, that's the way with big movies. I mean, I love the movie The Keep, and I have a VHS and a laser disc. That's as far as it's ever gone legally. You know, and oh, yeah. yeah, I saw that in the theater when it was brand new. But yeah, that's. That's too bad about how it's so rare because there's not any other Michael Mann movies that are rare like that. Well, I finally, I think I got a definitive answer on that whole thing because I, I love the book and I love the movie. They're two separate entities. They're as far apart as you can get. But I was told that he did, his original cut of The Keep was like three hours long. And um, Paramount, I believe, wanted it at 80 minutes. And they went in and cut it all to hell and back, and without him being involved. So he wants nothing to do with it. Like he doesn't want. He's like, they asked if they if he would do a director's cut. He goes, I don't believe that footage exists anymore. So, yeah, that's uh, that's really sad. I was just reading a biography of Stanley Kubrick, the director of A Clockwork Orange, mm -hmm. and it was like. One thing I found, or found in this uh, documentary uh, or my biography that's really shocking that he did, uh, he was just, uh, he basically did not want anyone to ever see any outtake footage from his movies. He only wanted 
to see the movies and he didn't want to show any outtakes. He never wanted the people to see deleted scenes. And so I read that after he would finish each movie, he would take all the 35 millimeter outtake footage and deleted scenes. He would have it all boxed up and he would instruct his assistant to drive it to a landfill and just dump it. And his land and his driver basically uh, says that's what he did. He would do that after every movie and make sure that all this footage was destroyed so that after Kubrick died, nobody could come in and release deleted scenes or outtakes. Yeah, Which is really frustrating because there were deleted scenes in uh, The Clockwork Orange I've seen stills from. There was like extra scenes filmed that didn't make it into the final movie and now mm -hmm. no one will ever see them because all the footage was taken to the landfill or something. Well, we thought we weren't going to see any more of 2001, but I guess what well, was about 10 years ago they found like 11 minutes that was never seen before. Yeah, well, right after it had its world premiere in New York, Kubrick actually immediately chopped it down and cut out some footage to speed it up a little bit. So I don't know if that footage exists, but he that happened with both that and The Shining, because after The Shining had its originally premiere, it originally had that extra scene at the end with the doctor uh, talking to Shelley Duvall, and then he immediately, after the first few screenings, removed that scene, and now that scene doesn't exist in any version anywhere. So he did that twice where he would change his movies after they had already opened in theaters and jerk out footage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, hearing about that. He did like, um, um, oh, man. Um, or he would just work on a movie and work on a movie and work on a movie that never saw the light of day at all. Oh, yeah. He had several like that like, that like never Napoleon saw the light of day. Or Waterloo. Well, he was going to make a biography of Napoleon which uh, he wrote a complete script for, and the script has been online for years. Anybody can go online and type in Stanley Kubrick Napoleon script and read the full script for his Napoleon movie. But uh, he wasn't allowed to make that because uh, Rod Steiger put out a Napoleon movie first called Waterloo that bombed in theaters, and after it bombed, then Kubrick's studio told him they were not going to give him the money to make it because there was no point in putting out another Napoleon movie when Rod Steiger's Napoleon movie was a giant bomb. But now, all these years later, his script that he wrote for his Napoleon movie is finally going to be made because I just read on the uh, one of the showbiz websites that it's now being made, and Spielberg has something to do with it, and it's being made as a multi-episode miniseries. So the way Spielberg came in and made AI after Kubrick died, now Spielberg is going to be involved somehow as a producer. He's not going to direct it, but he's apparently going to be involved in finally bringing Kubrick's Napoleon to life. Yeah. The other yeah. Kubrick movies like Wartime Lies, which he did years of research for, which were just totally abandoned. The Wartime Lies movie was completely abandoned. Well, because uh, Spielberg put out Schindler's List, and when that was a hit, Kubrick didn't want to put out his own uh, Holocaust movie. So he just canceled it after doing years of research. Yeah, he was studious on that stuff. He he really kept notebooks and everything else like that. And uh, it's funny because you read about what he was planning on doing with uh, AI. He wanted the, the little kid to actually be a robot. He was waiting for his technology to catch up. But oh, yeah. Natalie never did. I've, I've been communicating in the last few months with uh, one of uh, Kubrick's daughters, uh, Katharina. She's the only one that will talk to fans because the other daughter, Vivian, the girl that played the little girl in 2001, she's, you know, into Scientology and she's been kicked off of uh, 
Twitter, and so she no longer even has a social media platform. But the other daughter is the normal one, mm-hmm. and she's the one that'll talk to fans. So you can write to Katharina, and she'll a lot of times she'll write you back. So I've written to her several times, and she always writes me back. And just recently, I was showing her a, an original newspaper ad I found for a Clockwork Orange, which I had never seen before. It was an ad that had a quote from the uh, Spanish surrealist director Luis Bunuel. So I showed it to her and asked her if she'd ever seen this ad for Clockwork Orange. And she told me I'd managed to find an ad she had never seen. She said she'd never even heard of this ad. So she was very excited that I found it for her. Wow, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so I, I, I'm amazed I found something she hadn't known about. <laughs> that, that's always cool when you can do that, when you can you can surprise somebody with something that they, they're not aware exists or, you know, something that they haven't seen in years or, you know. Yeah, and she's actually in A Clockwork Orange because uh, she's in the scene in the record store so that when it shows Alex walking through the record store right before he hits up, finds those two girls that he starts hitting on, She's one of the customers in the record store. She said her father would usually stick her somewhere into his movies. She's also in Barry Lyndon, and she actually, and then toward the end, she started working on his movies as a as an assistant. So he liked to involve both of his daughters in his movies, and he had three daughters, and one of them passed away a few years ago, and then one of them is the one that was into Scientology that has gone a little crazy, but the normal one is the one I communicate with. <laughs> All right, so I, I got to ask you: um, Do you have a favorite movie that you've worked on? Oh, that I've worked on? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, well, probably uh, compelling evidence is my favorite movie I've worked on because that was, you know, the first time I had that was the first time I had a six-figure budget for a movie that I was directing. So it was very exciting because that was made in '94, and I just made this movie, Red Lips, which I did for under five grand. And so, just a few months after doing this movie for about five grand uh literally just a few months later i suddenly found myself with a two hundred fifty thousand dollar budget and the producer basically was giving me uh free reign to hire you know anybody uh, i could afford he gave me a forty thousand dollars celebrity budget that i could hire celebrities with so we spent 30 grand of it on brigitte nielsen because i knew that she was popular enough in europe that we could pre-sell the movie all over europe based on her name and then I hired Lynn Lowry. I'd been communicating with Lynn Lowry for years. I'd interviewed her for my Splatter Times about all her horror classics. Like she was in The Crazy. She was in Cronenberg's first movie, uh, which was called They Came From Within. And it was also known as Shivers. Shivers. Yeah. She had people with Natasha Kinski and uh, Drink Your Blood. So she was like a horror legend. And so I've been interviewing her. Uh, I first interviewed her in the early 80s. And then ever since then, I'd wanted to put her in a movie, but I'd never had a movie where I could afford her before. So when I finally got this six-figure budget, I was finally able to offer Lynn a job in one of my movies. So that was exciting. And then I put Lynn, uh, Melissa Moore in it too because she had been in my cheap movies, Scream Dream and Vampire Cop. So I wanted to reward her for doing my cheap movies by putting her in my big movie. And then for Icing on the Cape, we hired uh, Dana Plato, who had been in Exorcist to the Heretic. And she was also the star of that TV show, Different Strokes, with Gary Coleman. So we had a really good cast with that movie. So you know, to have a the first to have a big budget for the first time ever after years of doing these cheap movies, that was so exciting. And uh, 
Ivan had enough budget that uh, we decided we needed to have a nice mansion for Brigitte Nielsen to live in. So I went out and rented a Italian villa that we rented for $2,000 a day so that we could film all Brigitte Nielsen scenes in this fancy Italian villa. So that was a, a nice experience to finally have plenty of money to play with. <laughs> yeah, that that's neat. That 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 is very cool. Um, I have to ask, have you, is, I, I ask this of all the filmmakers I do, money's no budget, or money, money's no issue on your budget. Who are you hiring to be in your next movie? Oh, well, if I could hire anybody uh, without budget being a consideration, well, I'd, I'd really like to do a movie with Barbara Crampton, but I would have to have probably, uh, you know, Again, I'd have to have a six-figure budget. You know, if we had a six, if we just had a nice six-figure budget, we could afford to hire her. But I haven't had a six-figure budget in several years. So if we ever have one again, she's somebody I would like to hire because she's just been killing it lately, doing one great movie after another. And uh, I think she's got such hardcore fan support. I think fans really like to support any movie she's in. Yeah, and so she's definitely somebody I'd like to hire. A lot of my favorite male actors are all dead or retired, so you know I'd like to hire John Mulder Brown for a movie because he was one of my favorite horror stars of the '70s. He did the House That Screamed, which I just got the new Blu-ray from Arrow Video. He did Hammer's Vampire Circus, and then he did this great psychological horror movie called Deep End, where he plays a psycho psycho teenager that's got a psycho obsession with this girl. And uh, so just those three movies made him sort of a horror cult star. And he's still alive, but uh, he's sort of retired. He runs an acting school in England. But if I could get him out of retirement, that would be nice to be able to have him in a movie because I'm such a big fan of his. Yeah. Now, do you ever, when you write a movie, do you write a movie with a with an actor in mind? Or do you... Yeah, I have my own story company for the last few movies. I've got my own sort of repertory company of actors that I use. And so whenever I write movies now, I always write it with a specific member of my repertory company in mind. Like for example, uh, there's an actor, Ford Winstar, who's been in the last several of my movies. I, first time I used him was in Cannibal Cop. Then I put him in Hooker with a Hacksaw and Cannibal Hookers and Bigfoot Exorcist, Shark Exorcist 2. And then I more recently put him in Debbie Does Demons. So basically, all these movies for the last several years, I don't make a movie without Ford Winstar in it. He's he's my go-to male actor. And so uh, whenever I'm doing a movie, I always write his part specifically for him because I know what he's capable of. I know he can handle tons of dialogue, and he can, uh, he's really good at making his dialogue really funny and really high energy. So I always write his scenes specifically with him in mind. Just like when I use Jessa Flux, who's the star of my last several movies, mm -hmm. uh, I know what she's capable of. She can really handle tons of dialogue. She's really she's really serious about memorizing her parts and studying her parts, so she always comes prepared, and she really knows how to deliver a scene with you know, a big, big, big personality. She knows how to create a big personality in her roles and really deliver it for the camera. So... It's fun to write for them because I know what they're capable of doing on camera. And when you have actors that are that good and that you can know what they're capable of, you can write for their uh, write to their strengths. So it makes it much easier than just writing a scene um, on spec and just hoping I can find an actor who can deliver it. Because I know I've got these hardcore actors that'll do a great job with these roles that I write specifically for them. 
it's nice because uh, there's a lot of indie actresses, actors, directors, special effects people out there that are really just knocking it out of the ballpark. And, you know, when you can find a group of people that you work with, that you work well with, and they still keep knocking it out the ballpark, that's, that's a great find. And, and you know, that, that's awesome that you can do that. Pattern I followed since the 80s, I've usually tried to have a actor or actress that I would try to, as long as they're willing to work with me, I like to do uh, keep making movies with them. So, I mean, it started with uh, Melissa Moore with Scream Dream in my third movie. Uh, uh, the people that were in my first two movies, uh, Demon Queen and Cannibal Hookers, I never worked with any of those actors again. But uh, once I started, uh, did Scream Dream with Melissa Moore, uh, she was so good that I wanted to keep putting her in all my movies, so I gave her a little cameo in Savage Vengeance. I put her in Vampire Cop, and then I put her in my documentary Invasion of the Screen Queens, and then I, I put her in Compelling Evidence. So I just kept doing movies with her until she finally retired from acting and wasn't available anymore because she inherited her parents' uh, horse stable where she's uh, a horse breeder for and takes care of horses for clients, and so... She's now full-time into that and very rarely does movies. So the only reason I stopped making movies with her was because she retired. And then I did a couple of movies with Camille Keaton. And then I did a couple of movies with Jackie Hall. And I was hoping to do more movies with her. But then she moved to California where she was no longer available. And so now more recently I've done, um, I did a few movies with Casper Melted Hair, and uh, then after that, I did. I've uh, now done four movies in a row with Jessa, and I'm planning to do uh, two more with Jessa this year. So she's going to be the star of the Scream Dream movie that I'm co-producing, and then she'll also be the, the star of the next movie that I direct. Cool. It's funny. I'll keep you with Jessa as long as she's willing to work with me until you know until she's. she's Till you know, I'm not going to stop using her as long as she's available. She's so great. I'd, I'd hope to still be working with her in five or ten years. Yeah, uh, I'm planning on having her having an interview with her coming up sometime soon. So hopefully, we'll have her on there too. Uh, I got. I have a little place to go in a minute because my phone is. I see my phone is now at three percent. So okay. it's well, going to die very soon. Okay. Well, I'll uh, let you. I'll tell you a little quick story, real quick, and then I'll bid you a, a good night. Uh, I kept trying to talk to Angel, and she kept saying "scream dreams," and I could not get that out because it was twisting on my tongue so bad I couldn't say. So can't say it. But um, I will um, put links to all your up uh, your Facebook page. Um, any links that you have, just send them to me. Uh, I will put them at the end of the episode so people can find you and. Um, uh, if you have places where you can get your movies, um, if you want to tell anybody where you can get your movies, let, let people know. Um, All people have to do is go to Amazon.com and type my name in. And it'll bring up most of my movies. And uh, then if you go to eBay and type my name in, uh, with either do two searches, type in Donald Farmer DVD, and then type, do another search where you type in Donald Farmer Blu-ray. Blu and if you do those two searches, it'll bring up all my movies that are available in either DVD or Blu-ray on, um, on uh, eBay. And then between that and Amazon, you should be able to find most of my movies that are available in the U.S. And then um, I also have movies that are available in various foreign countries, which are the available of them as iffy. Like uh, I have a 
three movies that are available in Germany, but I don't. They may be out of print now. And then uh, Shark Exorcist has been released in three different versions in Japan. So uh, to see if that's currently available, you'd go to Amazon.jp, which is the Japanese Amazon site. The, Jap the latest version of it in Japan is the only version in the world that has my audio commentary. For some reason, they made my audio commentary an exclusive feature of the third Japanese release of Shark Exorcist. So it's not in the first or second release, but if you get the new third deluxe edition, you could do my audio commentary, which I did. And uh, I don't know how they do it over there if they put subtitles in Japanese so the, the people there can read my commentary while I say it in English. I'm not sure how they do. I'm, I'm going to say the ones I've seen, they do. They put uh, Japanese subtitles, well, it's like on the side, not across the bottom. Okay. But that's for this new, also for this new third version of Shark Exorcist that just got released in Japan. Uh, they put a lot of deluxe extras out along with it. They put out a paperback book of my screenplay for Shark Exorcist where it's printed in both Japanese and English. So as you go through the book, one side, one page, on the left side it'll be in English and on the right side it'll be in Japanese or vice versa. And it's like that all through the book. So I was really honored that they would. That's the first time a distributor has printed my screenplay as a companion paperback, so I was really happy about that. That's neat. That is neat. Um, all right. Well, sir, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I'll give you a heads up. I'm going to work on getting this edited tonight, which I don't think we have to edit a whole lot, um, but I'll drop it tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon for me, tomorrow morning for you. And um, thank you a lot. I appreciate it. Um, I'd love to have you back on again some other time because we're going to have, uh, I'm talking to uh, Morgan, Angel, and Jamie. Uh, hopefully we're going to have a, 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 a three-people episode. So maybe I can work some actors and actresses and you and we can do a one big full episode again. So, Okay, well, that sounds great. And, you know, Angel and Morgan are both really incredible, both both of them and uh, they actually made a movie together which is how i found out about them called the house that eats flesh which should be coming out later this year so that's a movie i'm definitely looking forward to is seeing house that eats flesh starring morgan and angel yeah yeah it's yeah it's one of the ones where they told me about movies so i had to go find the other movies and i found out i'm like getting excited and then found out the movies ain't even available yet i'm like ah oh, man so um for I guess before we go, do you have a site where you can buy your stuff? Maybe do you have any signed memorabilia or anything, or movies? Well, you can buy all my movies from, like I said, mostly from Amazon and um, Wild Eye of uh, Amazon and eBay. But, but uh, the, for the movies of mine, quite a few of them are released by a uh, Culture Shock uh, District Culture Shock Releasing. So if you go to cultureshockreleasing.com. They sell quite a lot of my stuff. They have the double Blu-ray of Hooker with a Hacksaw and Cannibal Hookers. They have the new deluxe VHS of Scream Dream in both a normal VHS and a jumbo VHS. Mm -hmm. They have my Cannibal Hookers soundtrack record on vinyl. And in a couple of months, they'll be selling Debbie Does Demons in the Blu-ray with a slipcover. Nice. So you can go to cultureshockreleasing.com and find a lot of my stuff on that site. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, sir. Thank you again so much. And uh, you have yourself a good night and take care. And um, I'll hopefully talk to you again soon.
All right. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me on your show and good to talk to you. Good talking to you. Thank you.